Hello, and welcome to On Record In Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Adrian Goldberg talks to Mistress Mo, one of the most prominent women on the 90s rave scene who got her break as the resident DJ at Slag. Mo talks about how she went from teenage raver to Mistress Mo, the DJ and promoter, and became the first woman to launch e-ticketing in 1999. Thanks. Here you are, Mo. You got some? I've, I've got a gin oh. here. Oh, really? Now, Mo, it's quite a CV you've got. For those people who don't know, resident DJ at the legendary Slag Night in Birmingham. Promoter and DJ at Flashback, which at some periods in its history anyway, was at Birmingham's equally legendary Q Club. You opened the old school days record shop in Selly Oak and founded both ticket sellers and eventry and were an innovator in the world of e-ticketing for events. When I read that CV back to you, how does that sound? That sounds quite impressive. Who are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and for someone so young as well. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because um, my dear mother is sitting here in the front seat and I'm sure when her um, eldest daughter went off to do an engineering degree at Birmingham University, she was very uh, excited about that prospect. And when I came to Birmingham, because it was just one of those potential universities, I met a guy on the open day in the cafe and he said, um, oh, why are you here? And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm thinking about coming here to university to do a mechanical engineering degree. And he said, oh, you don't want to do that. And I, and I was like, what do you mean? And he said, mechanical is really hard. He said, do manufacturing engineering. It's an absolute piece of, you know, doddle. And, um, and so I literally went in to speak to the like, guy that was interviewing me and said, you know, I, I think I've changed my mind. I think I want to do manufacturing. And he was like, why is that? And I kind of came out with whatever story needed to unfold about how my love of manufacturing and um, ended up doing Manenge. And, and the beauty of that is that the first year was for people who hadn't done maths and physics A-level, which I had. So my first year was obviously a complete doddle. And that's when I met all my kind of raving crew and so like you say the accidental career was almost born from that very early chance meeting with frank so frank if you listen to this podcast thanks very much <laughs> so you are an adopted brummy what was your first impression of this place honestly when you came absolute in? nightmare i mean it's interesting isn't it because like my husband's nieces and nephews have all sort of gone off to university now and they're very um involved in the choices you know they've looked at the course content and they've taken it all very seriously and obviously mum and dad go to the open days with you but in my day it was literally like pick somewhere that wasn't that far from far enough away from home that you're leaving home but not that far away you can't you know take your washing or whatever and um and so we kind of picked this place uh, of Birmingham but the first time I came up I drove myself in my old mini metro and the A38 you know the underpasses and the tunnels well this is well pre sat nav so I literally had my A to Z on, my, on the steering wheel and trying to do I come up here or is it the next one and then there's a bus up my backside and I think I ended up in tears in a lay-by totally um lost and just thinking this is an absolute nightmare but then obviously found Birmingham Uni campus in Selly Oak and there was no real rhyme nor reason to pick Birmingham out of my five choices apart from it just felt really good 
Well, we're glad you're here. You Thanks. are definitely a Brummie. Like many people, you weren't necessarily born here, but Birmingham is your chosen home, and I think that makes it special in a way. You've chosen to I be here. I haven't managed to escape. <laughs> you haven't managed. She still can't find her way out through the Aston Expressway. <laughs> so tell me about growing up then. You, you grew up down south, I'm guessing? Yeah, so we lived in Richmond in Surrey before it was posh until I was about seven and then I did a stint in Essex I think that's where the twang um comes from and people say oh I was life in London but I, I really I was 12 when we left London so I don't really know about that but it was brilliant childhood you know n not really much to to complain about and then um we moved to Salisbury again because of dad's job but I think that was a, an interesting one because I just started at my secondary school in Woodford Green in Essex so you know the trauma of kind of going to secondary school and all that and then two terms in mum and dad sit me down and they're like right I'm sorry about this we're going to move to the countryside and I'm like oh thanks very much for that you know so I turn up in Salisbury quiet sleepy market town with my Essex accent I was already like five foot ten you know this is the 1980s so I had my like paisley tights and short skirts and all the kind of London thing that I thought was really cool and I can imagine that the Salisbury girls were like what the has just walked in you know but I, I genuinely feel like perhaps that was the first point in my life where I had to be a personality or be someone or that's a tough time to make friends the third term of the first year especially when you look different and you sound different so but then my years in Salisbury were absolutely fantastic you know, I had brilliant mates and all the rest of it. But um, another life-defining moment, and, and I'm so middle class, it's untrue, sorry. But um, my mum and dad bought me a car for my 17th birthday. So I'm not a very material person, and I declined birthday presents for years and years. And then I kind of did okay in my GCSEs. And then on my 17th birthday, I got driven to this garage, and there was this beautiful, gleaming, orange mini-metro. You know, it was just the best thing ever four gears you know thousand cc engine and, and again that was like the next chapter of my life because suddenly I was very very popular at school um <laughs> you know it took me two months to pass my driving test my birthday's in September by Christmas I'd passed my driving test so you can imagine like suddenly the invites came flooding in and that all kind of adds to the the sort of picture doesn't it this accidental career that you talk about you know there's all these little things that are on their own probably wouldn't add up to much but all one after the other I was like oh okay here I am and the synchronicity the mini metro you know made in Birmingham <laughs> who'd have thought it could, al could almost have been planned but that move and you've reflected on it there is, is actually quite something to have to take on isn't it secondary school as you say is traumatic for everybody that adjustment and then your parents put you through it a second time I know bless them <laughs> What kind of child were you? You don't know. I was obviously really well behaved and totally good all the time, I think. <laughs> I was good, you know. I kind of cracked on at school. I played the violin badly. Um, my, my dear auntie, like, came over and relentlessly tried to teach me the recorder. So there is a bit of, mu like, proper music in me, you know, desperately tried to take that on board. I think I might have played the piano at some point. But I kind of, I was always involved in stuff. I've always been busy. I've, I like being busy. And, and I think that came all the way through school. I organised our sixth form Leavers Prom, which was a proper like black tie gig at, at the age of 17 or whatever. That was really good. And then we had a, an A-level results party. So mum and dad were abroad and allowed me to use the house as a party. My boyfriend at the time ran a, um, 
uh, an entertainments business. So this Leavers party had a full gyroscope in the front garden, you know, a standing up one that you strap yourself in, and a bouncy castle in the back garden. We took all the doors off the hinges and put them in the garage, put boards down on the floor. It was amazing. And then the police turned up. <laughs> and they were like, do your parents know about this? And I was like, yep. And they did. Not only did my parents know about it, we'd actually written to all the neighbours to make sure we didn't get into trouble. So I think the police kind of knocked on a few doors. And they were like, oh, yeah, 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 they told us they were doing it. Yeah, we've given our permission. It's all cool. So, you know, a bit naughty, but not really. Wow, but you'd, already, you'd got that organisational head on then. That's, that's a just natural like thing with you. just like having a party, to be honest. <laughs> I'm trying to pay tribute to you here, and all you do is just <laughs> enjoying the party side of it. And you're a mum now as well. I'm just thinking how you... You went down the route of going to raves and so on, and you're a mum now of two young children who are with us as well in the audience. I just wonder how you reflect now as a mum. Have you seen her hat? I mean, for those of you (laughs) who are listening to this, you can't see this hat, but it's spectacular. I've coveted this hat since she was given it. But it's a really interesting one, because would you want your children to follow in your footsteps? Mostly yes. But I think when you kind of do the whole rave thing and club culture and I got away with a lot back in the day and I kind of came out of it unscathed, but a lot of my friends didn't. And I think the easier route is probably just not to. But then on the other hand, we were part of a culture. We were part of a scene. It was kind of growing as we were taking part in it. You know, if something like that, if there is another culture to be had or another scene and they want to get involved early doors and kind of help that seem to flourish and progress and I don't really want to stand in there luckily they've got a really good dad so he can he can bring the moral high ground when it's uh, when the time comes did your parents they can't have known what you were up to not at the time <laughs> I mean to be fair this is this is, this is again about a work ethic and stuff isn't it so I'd often go out I'd often leave on like a Saturday morning or whatever and this is like pre-mobile phones as well so if you'd arranged to meet someone at a particular service station or a particular car park and and this was Salisbury so I used to drive down the M3 to to London possibly meet wherever had been arranged two weeks before and you didn't you didn't mess about because if you weren't where you were supposed to be you know if you said I'll be there in two weeks time or in a month's time you, you had to be there and then go raving all night drive wherever And then I had a job in a pub, so I'd get back to the pub for sort of eight o'clock in the morning, clean the pub, have a half an hour break, put my smart gear on, waitress all afternoon, probably go round to someone's house in the afternoon for a bit of a chill, and then go back to school on Monday. You know, I've got diaries for all of this, and I read these diaries now, and I'm like, oh, oh, to be young, because frankly... (laughs) Yeah, and it didn't affect your schooling, and you were bright enough to come and do engineering at Birmingham, or, or it did it? Well, put it this way, my beautiful art teacher miss evans took me aside at some point into my upper six and said we've kind of noticed mo that you're very skinny and you're very tired on mondays and you're quite scruffy and basically get your finger out or you're going to fail your a levels and if you fail your a levels your ticket out of here is is gone so i again another uh, lady that i have a lot to thank for so i kind of i quit raving for a bit in 92 to actually get my A-levels and, and, and indeed buy my ticket out of Salisbury, so. What else did you like doing as a teenager? Oh, you know, the usual, <laughs> drinking down the field. I mean, I lived in Downton. I mean, Downton is a village, you know, there wasn't really a great deal to do. So the car and the kind of raving was my ticket out there. But I think I did sport, quite, I was quite good at netball and athletics and stuff. So that kind of kept me on the straight and narrow for quite a while. But yeah, you know, just, just busy with friends, really. And you've come to have a life in or around music. Were you massively into music as a teenager? 
Not really. I mean, when I think about my bedroom wall as a teenager, I'd drawn some lovely artwork and I had like The Cure, which was quite cool, and The Cult, which was quite cool. And then I had an Erasure logo. Not very cool, you know, but quite eclectic. I think I liked music, but I think I had a Crowded House CD in my car. I just admitted that in public, haven't I? (laughs) (laughs) I think this is before you came to Birmingham, wasn't it, that you became a DJ? No, no, it happened in my first year. I basically went to someone's house for a party and they had decks upstairs and everyone was blah, blah, blah. And anyway, the guy came up, Stu Hackett, thanks very much. And, and he was like, oh, wow, when did you learn to DJ? And I was just like, well, I didn't. And he was like, well, you're kind of doing the beat matching thing. And I was like, oh, cool. And I got myself some decks kind of following that experience. Um, so, yeah, it was my first year at uni, basically. Can you remember the house and the address? There'll be a blue yeah, plaque I know, there one I know, day. I know exactly <laughs> where it is. It's on the old sister road, just between, as you come out of Mosley and go into King's Heath. How did that then progress into organising events? So, where's Jimmy? Jimmy's here. I'm so glad Jimmy's here. Well done. So, I met Jimmy. Jimmy's not clever. Jimmy's brother... <laughs> Jimmy's brother was the clever one, and Jimmy just used to hang around with the cool kids. And, um, and I met Jimmy, I think, in my second year, and Jimmy was just like, oh, you know, I love old school music. And it's like, this is, we're talking sort of 93, 94. I mean, it's literally not that old school at that time at all. And really, again, in terms of kind of the people you meet and the circumstances that you fall into, when I landed at uni in 92, SL2 were playing at our freshers party in the Deadpool and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven you know it was just like I'd, I'd kind of come from from sort of giving up raving and all that and landing in Birmingham not knowing anyone to like oh SL2 are playing in the Deadpool this is amazing and uh, Lisa Bayliss who was a second year at the time kind of spotted me and my stripy homemade trousers and my sort of dreadlocks like beads and and kind of said hey you're cool do you want to come and meet all my mates and all those people were like Cookie and Hollis, the people that ran Crunch and the the club nights that were happening in Birmingham at the time. And it was literally within a couple of weeks of landing at uni, like, okay, let's do this all over again. This is fantastic. So just really lucky that it it all just happened really quickly. And you'd had your warning at school about pulling your socks up for your A-levels. How was the balance between then what was a burgeoning DJ career and Um, your studies? It's a good question, but like I say, I kind of work hard, play hard. That's always been my mantra. And because I was doing an engineering degree, I think I had like 25 hours of lectures. It's like you can't wag that many lectures and get away with it. So I kind of just decided I'm going to do what I'm going to do at the weekend, but I'm, I'm going to go to lectures. And actually, I've got really nice handwriting, just in case you need to know. And, and people used to ask me for my notes. I should have charged for them. I tell you, I'd have made an absolute killing. So all the other layabouts that were, uh, that were lying in or whatever, I, I was the one there writing really, uh, really neat uh, notes. So I, I think it was that decision, like, I'm here. I'm here for four years. I might as well, you know, make the most of it. And you're a natural... Organizer, well, I think we discovered that from your your teenage parties, but also a natural entrepreneur. I mean, you had nights at the Q Club at Flashback, more than two and a half thousand people in there. I mean, that's that's something to be quite something to be responsible for, isn't it? Well, luckily for me, I didn't have the job of being responsible because there was quite a good team uh, effort there. But um, we got a call. I think sometime in 96, 97. It was a very cryptic call. It came into my DJ agent at the time, Jane, um, who was running the Gift from the Gods tour. And, and, it, and this message was, uh, my name's Gerald Bailey. If you haven't heard of me, like, check me out. I want you to come and meet me at my office in Wolverhampton. 
And um, anyway, we invested this guy and, and it investigated. And it turns out that he was the promoter of Atomic Jam, which was like the best night in the land. So we, we went off to Wolverhampton, like all of it, what, what's going on? Second best, all right. And, uh, <laughs> and Jez was just like, look, we've been watching what you've been doing at, at Crunch and uh, at the university, and, and, and we think you could do the Q Club. And we literally like just fell off our seats, didn't we? We were like, are you up for it? And I'll back it. And it was just like, uh, yes. And he was like, would you like to book Groove Rider? He's my mate. And I was like, uh, yes. So, you know, um, I've got a lot of people to thank along the way for that. But yes, it's that kind of, you know, the entrepreneurial thing. It's kind of not overthinking things. You can talk yourself out of a deal. And Jez's deal was, was a good one. He was like, I'll put, oh, I'm sure it's fine to talk about this now. I'll put 80% of the money in, but I'm taking 80% of the profit. And if it gets good and you've ever got any money, we'll go 50-50, but it's never going to go any, any more than that. And we were like, oh, so we sort of walked away and we're like, oh, 20%, you know, mm. 20% of a night at the Q Club for two broke ex-students, you know, it was absolutely wonderful. And again, it was just that, it's just that feeling in your bones of just don't overthink it. Just, you know, if it, it, do your due diligence always on a deal, but just, just go for it, you know. So you went back and you did accept it. Oh, yeah. I, th <laughs> I, think, I think we probably bit his hand off on the day, to be honest. And just give us a sense, for people who weren't there in those times or in that place, what was a big night at the Q Club like? I mean, you'll have to watch Jez's documentary when it comes out. What's the launch date? 28th of April, in the queue, look it up, because he's done an amazing, amazing job. I mean, we're, we're there in, in the kind of late 90s, early noughties, but it goes back way, way before that. But it's an amazing, amazing venue, like an ex-church um, like cathedral, like massive auditorium. I used to get ready for those nights, and I'd be thinking, you know, there's 2,500 people all around the country now, people from Exeter, people from Manchester. You know, we used to look at the data of where our ticket holders were um, coming from, and I was imagining these 2,500 people all in their bedrooms, all in their kitchens, all in their cars, all getting ready to kind of converge on this venue that we were at. And then there was the, obviously the queue, the massive queue that kind of went around the block, and you could hear the, you know, the, the windows shaking and the excitement and the, the scary bit of getting through the door, which I'm sure is the same in, you know, in any, in any um, club. But once you were in there, the atmosphere was just so... Anyone who was there, we always say, it's never going to be like it used to be. It isn't. I mean, it's, it's good now. It's different good. But back then, you know, we didn't have phones. So when you were getting dressed to go to your night raving, you were like, what, what can I dance in and what can I, you know, what can I get really hot in? And you didn't really worry about what your hair looked like. You didn't really worry if you were going to get a bit, you know tiddled because no one was gonna <laughs> no one was gonna like film you and then suddenly you'd go viral the next day like looking absolutely dreadful so it was a very free and carefree time uh, flashback in particular was it was quite a dark night I mean we used to have quite a lot of the Birmingham gangs turn up and again I mean I was hoping Jez might be here tonight but Gerald thank you because Jez is a very very well connected individual and he would have a word, you know, we'd often see him on the door, like some big dude turn up and then Jez would be out the box office and having a word. And the word was literally like, we are having a party here and you can come in and you can enjoy this party with us, but no messing about. So we'd have some of the burger crew over there and we'd have some of the Johnsons over there. And if you walk around the back, it was a little bit dark over there. Let's not go back in that corner again, you know. But it was, everyone really appreciated the the party that they were at and the experience that they were having and everyone pretty much behaved themselves. I can't say there was never any incidents, but I think people really appreciated what they were, they were getting. 
Now, of course, we'd never encourage anyone to ever consume any illicit substances or do anything illegal. But the reality is that drugs were part of that scene. How do you reflect on that now? I mean, it's a really tough one because, you know, it's kind of like drugs, the music, the culture, the scene developing, the venues all kind of go hand in hand. And I kind of alluded to it earlier. I feel like there was a lot of people who who survived the experience unscathed and actually still very positive about it. Or it was a fantastic experience. It was a brilliant thing to be a part of. But then, you know, there were definitely people who fell by the wayside who are now suffering with kind of mental health issues or whatever, who, who didn't get away with it. And obviously the answer is just don't do drugs. But really the answer also is don't drink alcohol and don't smoke and basically don't have any fun ever and you'll be fine and you'll live till you're 110, you know. So you've got to kind of decide what your own path in life is going to be. I mean, I definitely feel now that students, I think, have a, a tough time because they're paying so much money to come to university now and as I say our nieces and nephews are focused so much on like the content they're going to get out of their courses I'm like do students ever take drugs anymore are they all too sensible now you know go and let your hair down have a nice time how did ticket sellers come about you ran a record shop as well old school days in Selly Oak and ticket sellers but ticket sellers is really interesting because I guess this was at the evolution of or the dawn of e-ticketing oh if only we'd got funding earlier Ugh. Um, so basically, uh, we were running Flashback. It was really, really successful. We were doing, I don't know, six, seven parties a year. And at that time, we rented a Fiat Panda Uno from our friend Carlo, which I think cost us about £90 a month. And that was our office. So we would spend the whole time driving from all, I alluded to earlier, all these different, every town had its own ticket agent. So we'd go from Eversham to Worcester to Oxford to Manchester to wherever. And, and, and we'd be either collecting ticket money or dropping off tickets and flyers. And it was painful. You know, you'd, you'd drive all the way to Manchester and then, you, and then you'd be like, the guy with the key for the safe wasn't there that day. Uh, and you'd be like, oh, brilliant, you know, okay, I'll come back tomorrow. So anyway, we, we did all this, and, and then we were like, we have to have a base. So we went to the Prince's Youth Trust at the time, and um, we got a, a grant, and the grant was three and a half grand, which at the time was like so much money. It was unbelievable, and, and that's kind of where the shop came from. So we had this little ticket shop. Because we had flashback, we had lots of other promoters coming to us, God's Kitchen, Gatecrasher, some really big names, and they were like, oh, you know, why don't you sell our tickets? And so we were like, well, it's all very well, the, the paper ticket thing, but we need a better way of doing things. And so to cut a long story short, we literally persuaded Streamline to give us a, a customer not present um, facility. So people would ring us, we'd write their full credit card number down, their full address, you know, not very thing. Then we'd go to the phone box and do a 192 check on them. That was our security measures. <laughs> and then, uh, and then when, when we'd actually got it through, we'd, we'd type up their details onto a, a Word document, print it, fax it to the venue, send the fax, you know. So you can imagine what fun it was on New Year's Eve when we had all the different events, like pages and pages in these carbon books of orders. And, and it was just like, okay, we need a website. So that's basically uh, where ticket sellers were born. It was to make our life easier. We were like, there has to be an easier way of doing this. But a know? website was still a relatively new thing at that time, it wasn't was, it? It so. was fairly new. I mean, we paid a student to do it, which was a really bad idea. We should have just invested and done it properly from the off. But, you know, it, it, it worked and it kind of got us off the ground. And the rest, as they say, really is, is history. But yeah, at that point, that was the point where we should have said, we, we are selling for like the country's major event organisers here. Let's, let's actually go down the route and get some, some proper funding. And we didn't, but you know, hey-ho. Yeah, I just think there's a great life lesson in here in that you have 
followed your instincts. I, I've just mentioned this before. I just think it's so instructive, though, that you've essentially done what you like as an adult, pretty much. I mean, that's pretty lucky, right? Yeah. <laughs> Being able to do what you love doing as a, as a job is, is brilliant. And if you can get yourself into that position, then well done you. Be careful, because sometimes when you turn your hobby into a job, it stops being fun. So that's, a, that, you know, that's another kind of lesson. But I think, yes, I think having that open mind, using your, um, your contacts, when people come to you with an idea, or when you're in that place, like when we, when we were in that place where we should have gone and got funding, you know, just going out there. I mean, I say this a lot about Birmingham, you know, Birmingham's a bit rubbish in, in selling itself and all the rest of it, but there's so many opportunities in Birmingham now. If you have that idea, you know, like Arts Council funding, Louisa's sitting here, bless Louisa for helping us get some, we, we, I never knew Arts Council funding was a thing, but it's there, you know, you just need to, you need to know someone who knows about it and you, and you need to kind of reach out and, and just be proactive. But yes, if you can turn your, your love into a job, then, then you're lucky. And that's, that's kind of how I feel, really. I want to talk a little bit about your influences, because I, I think you've acknowledged, really, that you weren't the world's most obsessed music fan, as many people are in their teen years. So as you came to enjoy raves and then came to be a DJ... What were you drawing on for that? It's an interesting one because I didn't really have even a, a desire to play a certain kind of music. I'm pretty sure my first records was because a friend of mine had a record shop and I went in and I said, give me some records to DJ with. And he was like, oh, there you go. And, and, and that was kind of that decision. I mean, I've done that heinous crime. I used to play Hard House. I, used to, I played at Sunday Central, you know, it was, it was great. But I didn't really like it that much. It just seemed to be the right thing to do at the time. And then I was like, so I'm playing at Hard House Nights. I don't really know anyone. And then as soon as I've finished, I'm scarpering to the next drum and bass gig. I'm going to play drum and bass. I'm going to do that. I'm just going to buy drum and bass records instead. And everyone was like, oh, you can't do that. And it was just like, oh, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And then, and then I found my music. Drum and bass is my thing. Even now, like, I still like going out raving. And, and it's probably a drum and bass night. Day, actually. <laughs> But again, we were chatting a little bit earlier and, and talking about how, for you, this has been about finding your tribe, finding people that you feel comfortable yeah, with. Yeah, I mean, like I say, when I started at uni, it was just magical. I was there with my people. I, I got spotted by a second year. And when you're a first year and you get taken in by a bunch of second years, that's really cool. And when those bunch of second years turn out to be club organisers and stuff with really good club nights, that's like really really cool but, you know it kind of came to an end a bit and then and then I, I met my Bessie over here Estee who's frankly driven all the way here from Bury St Edmunds today thank you mate and 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 kind of off we went again really I think um she's a lot younger than me <laughs> and, and so again my my influence there you know it was just I, I just wanted to kind of do it over again and and, and Ant's here today and a few more of the raving crew and it's just when you've got your buddies and that's your thing, it doesn't have to be very often, once or twice a year, you know. Um, but, yeah, but those, those people in your life are important to you. And it's like, we can do the mundane stuff. We can do the mum stuff. We can do the shopping. We can do the all that stuff. But just give us a couple of weekends a year to go out and blow out the cobwebs, you know. And the, the first, I suppose, really big night that you were associated with was SLAG, which, for people who don't know, was stands for straight lesbian and gay and was based at the steering wheel club yeah. at the top of her street in Birmingham. It was run by a guy called Patrick Edwards, who was a legend on the gay scene yeah, in Pat. Birmingham and uh, hosted by Twiggy, yeah. a well-known drag artist yeah. on the Birmingham scene. And that was the place where you became Mistress Mo. <laughs> 
yeah so and 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 actually it was black pat and tat who who kind of got me involved in that and um they were like uh okay mo so you you're dj mo so no one can tell kind of what gender you are you turn up in your like dungarees with no makeup so you, you could, frankly you could be a girl or a boy and there aren't many female DJs around so we're going to make it really obvious and and you're going to be mistress mo on our flyers from now on I was like yeah okay whatever <laughs> and then a few months later I was like oh that's actually a rubbish name I don't like it and then by then it was just it was it was just too late it, it stuck by then I think um Andy Ward actually who did a, a show on Choice FM for ages I went to see him about this conundrum I didn't like my name and what should I do and uh, I think on one flashback flyer, I was motion. Cool. And then he was just like, nah. <laughs> but that's also where your look came, wasn't it? You had a look. Okay, so for a little while, yeah, it was um, like black leather, um, like thigh-high platform boots. I had a rubber dress. I had a like spiky dog collar, you know, the full shebang. But frankly, it just didn't, it just didn't work very well because it was a blinking uncomfortable and b it just wasn't me you know so after a while it was like that's that's enough of the of the silly outfits now i'm just mo yeah i just wondered how important the gay scene was because i i think at the time the fact that there was this fusion you know straight lesbian and gay in one club that was I think seen as quite radical at that moment. It kind of, it kind of wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, let's be honest. This is like Birmingham's absolute heyday. I mean, God's Kitchen was going off. You know, um, Sunday Central was going off. Slag was. I mean, there were just, there were just brilliant, brilliant club nights. You know, everywhere you looked, and Birmingham was like a clubbing mecca. People were travelling from all over the country to come to these venues. And so there was a massive gay scene and Tintins and, you know, uh, Nightingale and all that was all happening then. But it just, the whole club thing was so inclusive that it just didn't really matter. You know, you could go to a gay night and you, so that's fine. And, and, and obviously gay people could come to, to the straight nights. You, you know, it wasn't, yeah, it was just brilliant. You know, you kind of take that for granted. But before that, I think that, that wasn't so easy, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I know there's a lot more happening in Birmingham now than I know about. I'm far too old and, and, and sofa-ridden to, uh, to really have explored the sort of dark underworld of Birmingham nowadays. But I see things crop up. I see, like, clubs pop up, and I'm like, what's that? And it's like, that's a really trendy club, Mo, that you know nothing about. So I'm sure it is still happening, but I do feel like I'm not sure that Birmingham is quite the clubbing mecca that it used to be. Maybe nowhere is. Maybe, you know, after COVID and clubs closing and all the rest of it, you know, maybe that was just the heady, heady days when everyone was just into that sort of hedonistic experience. And now, sadly, people are more tempted to kind of stay home and get their watch Netflix and get their Deliveroo or whatever. Um, you know, maybe we just don't go out as much. It's mm. a shame. Yeah. You talk about that mix of straight and gay and that was just kind of normal on, on the scene in Birmingham at the time. But I think it is noticeable in the rave scene there were very few prominent women and you were one of them was oh, it? i don't know no? why that is i mean yeah. you know i think about this a lot but i think the crowd i don't know if it was just a lad thing you know the lads would like come on let's go to a rave you know girls would go obviously but raves have always been sort of fairly male heavy even now we go to like the hospitality all day in in london and there's a lot more girls there because it's quite a safe environment and you know the clubs are quite um corporate you know you're going to get well looked after but it was quite a male heavy thing. And again, I don't understand why more girls didn't put themselves forward or maybe they did and they didn't get anywhere. I don't have the answer to that question. I, I'm not sure I would be sitting on this sofa talking to you today if I was a bloke. Birmingham is full of very successful male music entrepreneurs. You know, I think the fact that I'm sitting here is 
primarily because I'm an unusual female musical entrepreneur, if I want to use that term. But yeah, definitely. I mean, I got to play the main stage at Shambhala a few years ago, and I know for a fact that was because they were trying to promote more um, women. And I was a little bit like, when I came off the I was so excited. I played Shambhala for years in the like late night venues. And, and again, talking about influences, Shambhala has been a massive, massive influence in my life and, and probably done sort of 10 years of, of late night sets. I don't charge for them. It's part of the thing. I'm going to play this set for free for you because it's all part of that love and that culture and stuff. But anyway, I digress. They, they, I got a, a call off their um, music book and he was like, how do you fancy playing Kamikaze? And I was just like, what? Thinking like, you know, Sunday afternoon set. No, no, Saturday night, 11 till midnight or something. We're trying to put more females on our lineup. I kind of said to my husband, you're like, oh, I, don't know, I don't know how I feel about this. They've only asked me to do it because I'm a woman. And he's like, they've asked you to do it because they know you're capable of doing a really good job and you're a woman so get up there play the best that you've ever played try and pass on some inspiration to some of those like young women and men in the in the audience make it more of a you know a normal thing to see it to see a woman behind the decks why not i didn't wear my dungarees (laughs) (laughs) what has been your career highlight what's been the best night you've ever done Oh, I mean, Shambhala's up there, I've got to be honest, because when, when, when I got the book in, I was like, I knew um, with my MC Boogeyman, we were like, this is going to be a very, very good show. I don't know what the capacity in there is, but it's probably a couple of thousand, and it's a massive marquee, so it looked and, and felt, and the energy in there on a Saturday night was amazing, and it was normally I play like, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning there, and it was early enough that even the kids could come, carried in on, on shoulders. My little boy lost his shoe, but we didn't care because it was all so much fun. Um, so that was a good one. I did... Um, I did Slamming Vinyl at um, Milton Keynes Sanctuary, which is a, another iconic venue, sadly. Now an Ikea, I think, something like that. Uh, so I played there on New Year's Eve in the Rollers Warehouse, and that was I did the 11 till midnight set. And again, I just knew that was going to be like just one of those. And then flashback, it's hard to pick. It's really hard to pick one of the best ones because blowing my own trumpet, of course. There were so many good ones. But I think some of the Christmas parties there, there was no real rhyme nor reason for them to be good. But a couple of them were just like next level. Everyone Actually, there was a flashback once when we'd, we'd beaten Germany 5-1 in the football in the World Cup in the summer. That one was, that one was quite good as well. <laughs> With all the, the behind-scenes stuff you do, organising gigs and selling tickets as well is is that a means to an end is that a means to dj or is that you know is that just now just what you do you know i'm I'm really again i'm really 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 lucky because i've always been a very take it or leave it dj person because i don't it's never been my career in terms of i've had to you know I, i came here um last sunday to the first one of these conversations to listen to daps and Dap said, you know, sometimes it's, it's tedious. You've got to write the next song. You've got to do the next piece of work because, you know, that's what brings in the coin at the end of the day. And if you don't do it, you, you know, you, where's, where's your next shopping or where's your bills going to get paid? And, and I think for me with DJing, it's always been a kind of a supplementary thing. I've always, had a, I've always had a job. And that's really good because it means that you can take it or leave it. So like if you want to book me because you like what I play, that's great. And if you don't want to book me, then that's fine as well. Don't worry about it. But I have to say, when you promote an amazing rave like flashback you get quite a lot of um if you play for me can i (laughs) (laughs) but when you say a job the job is promoting the gigs and selling the tickets yeah totally not not a proper job (laughs) not not a proper job never had a proper job (laughs) you've stayed in birmingham which is absolutely brilliant again is that something that's happened organically have you have you ever had that thought Maybe I could go somewhere else. Listen, if I didn't big up Birmingham, Jez would kill me. So, you know, I mean, there's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because 
I came here to go to university and most of my mates that I'm still mates with went to university here. So it just goes to show that actually having really good educational establishments in your city is a very good call to a city. And frankly, no. I mean, you know, we had the shop by 1998. The flashback parties were going really well. I've had brilliant, brilliant mates from university, from clubbing. You know, even even through to now, like, I've got one of my NCT buddies here. So even, like, you know, eight months pregnant, I've, I've took myself off to, a, to an NCT group to meet other massively pregnant women and moan about how bad our piles are. And, um, you know, and, and even then, I think it was the second meeting, we kind of met at this lady's house and we we all talked about how awful childbirth was going to be. And then we kind of went to the pub and, and Rosie put her hand up. Is anyone else going to have wine? Yep, that's me. I'm going to, I'm going to have some wine, you know. So even, even that, you know, we, we talked about community, haven't we, and a sense of community. And I think Birmingham, because it's, it's big but not that big, you have a sense of community. I've just noticed I've got some school mums here as well, like there and somewhere else. Even, even my school mums, they're brilliant. So I keep, is it just me? Am I just really lucky that I just keep stumbling across these wonderful people that give you that sense of community, they prop you up, they give you support. I've got some Goldman Sachs buddies over the back there who I did a course with them like, what, nine years ago. Kev sings in a choir, I've got some choir friends here. All these little bubbles of lovely individuals. And, and you've all bothered to come out here tonight and, and sort of listen to me yabber on. So thank you very much. But it just, it's, it's that, those people that support you. Why would you go anywhere else? Hey! <laughs> You've hinted at this a little bit earlier. I'm just keen to explore how you think the Birmingham music scene has changed since your arrival here as a student and, and since the heyday of Rave. I mean, that's a tricky one because unless you're, like, in it, you're not in it, but I've got a very big promoter sitting right in front of me here who's, who's, who's organising. I've got Dave as well from Suck It and See, who's just 10 years this year, Dave? 10 years with this amazing venue, still still at it, still hard at it. And I want to take my hat off to like Majika, who's, who's here in a few weeks, and to Pete from Maid, still promoting parties in the toughest of climates and, and, still, and still doing it. And, and it's people like that that kind of, that keep the scene going. We're all old and past it now, but the, the youngsters are doing these amazing parties too. But I'm not really an expert on the, on the Birmingham music scene now, but I, I know that it's still lively, which is fantastic. Yeah, and what about the city then that you've come to make your home? How has that changed? Uh, massively. I mean, I just... It's a conundrum, really, Birmingham, because in some ways it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, we had, we're had we sitting here looking at this amazing view out of, the, uh, out of the Symphony Hall here, looking across at the library and this beautiful plaza. And we came here a couple of weeks ago for the, the launch of the Birmingham 2022 Festival. Motion House were here, Critical Mass were here. It was just, it was just wonderful. I mean, I nearly cried about three times in the, in the performance. It's, oh, the brummies were here and, you know, there was a black woman in front of me and an Asian woman with her mask on and then a white guy was trying get in and take a photo and I was just like this is what Birmingham's all about it was it was wonderful and then the trams don't work come on you know like oh god you know so uh, Birmingham's a frustrating city I think it's a victim of its size it's so big sometimes the council is you know it's just hard to kind of get things going if you go to other cities you tend to find a more collaborative kind of how can we make this happen in Birmingham, it sometimes feels like that here's all the reasons why this shouldn't happen. And that's a shame. And, you know, we've talked about it. And, and this is for us to now try and instill in the next generation, like, come on, you lot. Don't, don't kind of buy into this sort of, whether it's apathy or it's risk aversion or whatever. Let's not let this wonderful city be a victim to that. We've got, we've got to kind of keep pushing. 
Brilliant. I know before we finish, you've got a, a big announcement to make. So do you want to do that now? I have. I don't know how many flashback rovers we've actually got here. <laughs> hey, oh, you're in the audience. We've got a few. Um, so whenever I go out, whenever I go out, I always, come on, mate, come on, mate. You've got to do another flashback. You've got to do another flashback. Now, flashback is very, very, very special. We had some amazing, amazing parties. And, you know, I've been asked a lot of times to do another, another one, another one. And it's very easy for the armchair ravers to... Uh, to demand a party and then are you actually going to come out you know on a Saturday night you know really three o'clock in the morning really um but um we did uh, legends in the park in 2019 with with Pete who runs made and that was wonderful because it was the day after made so all the infrastructure was there so we got to have a flashback data is Georgie's nodding over there brilliant it was it was wonderful was it? it was a good party we had a we had a marquee it was outdoors um it was I was going to say it was sunny it wasn't sunny it just rained and rained but Anyway, long story short, we're going to do another one this year. I finally found a venue that I think is, uh, is perfect for flashback. It's called Inside Outside. It's going to be on the 23rd of July. We're going to kick off about four or five o'clock in the afternoon. We've got the terrace at the mill. So we've got, we're going to have like proper, lovely, classic house, old school hardcore outside. We're going to soak up the sun. It's going to be the end of July. It's going to be beautiful. And then inside in the, in the black box, all the warehouse is flexible. We're going to have deep dark jungle from like 93 right through so we're still booking the lineup at the moment um i know top buzz have confirmed so that's quite nice but the party is about really promising the flashback ravers that we are going to really look after them we're going to have lots of places to sit down we know you're all knocking on a bit <laughs> you know we'll make the areas really really nice um and and just make sure that everyone it's a it's you know the djs are important and the music's important but it's more about the providing the you know the place for people to come together and kind of reminisce and probably get up to no good and you know but i think we're going to finish at like two or three so don't worry it won't be too much of a late night <laughs> Mo, you've made a massive contribution to the birmingham music scene and perhaps a contribution that isn't celebrated enough inside the city or outside yeah i mean do you feel that listen i don't really care do you know yeah. what i mean i'm like I, i've had a brilliant brilliant life i'm so blessed I've, I've i've managed to do what i love doing pretty much all my life i've got amazing friends who support me and you know if i've helped in any way along the way for people to have a nice time then that's just a massive bonus so it's all good and as birmingham goes towards the commonwealth games 2022 any, are you just going to keep on keeping on organising events? And Let's see how July the 23rd goes and, and, and we'll see. But I think, um, you know, as I get older, I feel like it's time to kind of give, give more back as well. You know, when you've got a little bit of money and you don't need to graft the whole, you know, 40 hours a week that, that you've got. I, I really want to try and, you know, where's Jimmy? I'm going to go and talk to some students tomorrow, you know, the other Jimmy. And, uh, and hopefully kind of inspire some of his students with like what life is like, you know, in, in events land and, and things like that. So, and ticket sellers as well, you know, we've got, I don't know, 25 employees now. We're, we're, we're recruiting, I think, 60, 70 people throughout the summer to work and we're going to train them and hopefully give them a really good experience and show them, you know, we've, we've put people through, um, you know, even our, our nephew who worked for us last summer man but one of the questions in his interview for his job for transport for wales was like tell me about an experience and so he relayed this entire experience from being on site so if we can kind of give back in that way i, th I think that's the next bit you come a, a long way for someone who just tried out a mate's decks <laughs> <laughs> in, in a house between king's Heath and mosley still there 
I, I mean, like I say, I just, I just feel very lucky. I don't know what's next, but I just, I think, be nice to people. There's no need not to be nice to people. You know, look out for people who are, you know, not as fortunate as yourself. Try and be aware of that, how other people might be feeling. You know, just keep being good people. That's, that's it. Brilliant, ladies and gentlemen, Mistress Mo, Mo Jones. <laughs> On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. <laughs> <laughs>